Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 68. Today, I will be talking about the murder of Mary Yoder. My sources for today's episode are A Time to Kill, Season 4, Episode 4, titled A Lady's Weapon, That Chapter, Oxygen.com, The Cinemaholic, FreeCaitlinConnelly.com, FoxNews.com, Syracuse.com, NewYorkUpstate.com, and StarTelegram.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. The internal organs looked like the cells were actually killing themselves. The difference in cases of poisoning is these are invisible murders. Who was within her circle? Who would have physical access to her? was fairly cold before there was another woman in bed with him. It was a fight. It was a hard pill for us to swallow that he couldn't kill his mother. Whoever wrote that letter was behind the homicide. This case takes place in Whitesboro, New York. Whitesboro is about three hours outside of New York City, and they have a very low crime rate. On July 21st, 2015, William Yoder brought his wife Mary into St. Luke's Hospital under mysterious circumstances. Mary had been complaining about stomach issues. She had been vomiting and had diarrhea for over 18 hours. In the middle of the night, Mary went into cardiac arrest. They revived her and numerous tests were done. The doctors still weren't able to determine what was making her so sick. On July 22nd, around 2.54 p.m., Mary died after going into cardiac arrest seven times. Mary didn't have any prior illnesses. She was a vibrant and full-of-life woman in her early 60s. She and William, or Bill as he's known, had been married for about 40 years, and they had three children together. Mary and Bill were both licensed chiropractors in the New York State, and they had their own practice. Mary was very healthy and took a lot of vitamins and supplements. An autopsy was ordered right away since Mary died under hospital care. The medical examiner had noticed that the internal organs looked like someone who had been receiving chemotherapy. Mary's youngest sister had called the police asking them to look into Mary's death. A toxicology report was done by the medical examiner. It came back negative as having any toxins or heavy metals in her blood. He then reached out for poison control. A doctor named Gina Morafa suggested that a test for colchicine toxicity be done. Mary had extremely high levels of colchicine in her system. Her cause of death was ruled as colchicine toxicity. Her stomach contents also came back positive for colchicine, which let us know that this substance was orally ingested, not injected into a vein. Colchicine is usually used to treat gout, and gout is described as a form of arthritis characterized by severe pain, redness, and tenderness in joints. It would typically take about 60 pills to kill someone of Mary's size. The police had to determine what Mary had eaten or drank in that day. The effects of the colchicine could take anywhere between four to eight hours after ingesting it for the effects to begin. Mary's cause of death was put between 8.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Bill told the police that Mary had begun to feel sick while she was still at work. Caitlin Connolly, the office manager, was interviewed. Caitlin was the on and off again girlfriend of Adam, Mary's son. Adam had gotten Caitlin involved in the family business around 2010-2011.
Caitlin was with Mary all day at the clinic. Caitlin did mention that Mary left for lunch around 12.30 to 1.30 p.m. Mary was going to have lunch with her mom, but her mom already had plans. Mary prepared a protein shake for herself around 1.30 p.m. She also took some supplements. She then saw her afternoon patients. Around 4.30 p.m., Caitlin noticed that Mary wasn't her usual self. Mary left work at 6 p.m. and told Caitlin that she was feeling ill. It's believed that Mary only had that protein shake that day, and that's how the colchicine had gotten into her system. That was around 1.30 p.m. The police obtained Mary's schedule and interviewed everyone who was at the office that day, as well as her patients. It was determined that Mary didn't have any conflicts with her patients, and they loved her. Mary's inner circle was then looked into. Bill was interviewed and looked into first. Leanna, the couple's oldest daughter, was asked about their relationship. She said they were very happy together and loving. Bill had told his daughter that he didn't think he could go on living without Mary. Leanna said that Mary's sister, Kathy, had just lost her husband the year prior. Bill reached out to Kathy. They had a friendship that led to a relationship, and it was only a few weeks after Mary died. The police looked into Bill's timeline. Bill said he woke up around 6 a.m. on July 20th. He worked out and usually got breakfast ready for him and Mary. He said Mary had complained, hadn't complained about feeling ill yet that morning, and everything was normal. He said Mary left for work at 8.30 a.m. Bill said he was off on July 20th and did some reading and watched a movie. He spent all day at home alone. Bill said Mary got home around 6.30 p.m. and laid on the couch all night not feeling well. Bill said Mary spent almost all night in the bathroom. Bill said he called his daughter Leanna, who was a doctor in Long Island, the next morning. Leanna suggested that Bill took her to the hospital. Mary's symptoms worsened, and then she died. The police asked Bill about an odd note that was found in the police report. On July 21st, Bill had left Mary's bedside because he was going to take over her patients the next day. Mary's condition worsened, and the hospital called Bill in the middle of the night, but Bill didn't answer, so a state trooper was sent to the house. The police also spoke to Kathy about when her relationship with Bill started. Kathy hadn't been trying to hide anything and was forthcoming. The police determined that the relationship hadn't started until after Mary died, and Bill was ruled out. The police received a pair of anonymous letters on November 23, 2015. The police and the medical examiner received the letters, and it was typed. The letters pointed to Adam Yoder being the main suspect, and it talked about his motive, which was financial. It also talked about how he purchased the colchicine. The letter said that the bottle of pills would be found under the passenger seat of his car. There was a stamp on the letter, and it was tested for DNA. Adam's background was looked into. Adam went to school and worked on and off. He wasn't financially independent, and Mary was super protective of him. It's believed that Adam and Mary had a fight and that Adam was mad at her, and supposedly he, po he poisoned her. Adam was called in for a formal interview. Adam came to the station in the vehicle that the letter writer would have the drugs in. They told him that they were investigating the death of his mom. On July 15th, Adam had stayed with his sister in Long Island. Leanna had four young children who loved Adam. The police brought up the anonymous letter to him and they showed him portions of the letter. Adam asked to speak to a lawyer. Adam spoke to his public defender and allowed the search of his car. They were outside while the police were searching his car and Adam was smoking a cigarette. The bottle of chlorchazine was found. Adam's cigarette almost fell out of his mouth. He appeared in shock and the receipt from that purchase was also found. The receipt showed that there was an email associated with the purchase. The email was mradamyoder1990 at gmail.com. It seemed really bizarre to the police. It seemed like Adam was being framed. Adam said it seemed like it was a combination of two email accounts he had. 
The police took a closer look at the bottle and the receipt from the purchase. Adam's phone and laptop were searched. The laptop showed that Adam had never used the Mr. Adam Yoder 1990 at gmail.com email. A subpoena was sent into Google for information about the account. Google had responded that the email had been accessed from two different locations and two IP addresses. The addresses were Caitlin Connolly's home and the chiropractic office. The police called Caitlin and requested an interview with her. Caitlin revealed that she was no longer seeing Adam and hadn't spoken to him since September 2015. Caitlin said Adam had mistreated her a lot of the time. Caitlin said Adam wasn't hardworking and couldn't keep a job. Caitlin said she was the first person Adam reached out to when he found out Mary was ill. Adam said he needed her and asked her to come to the hospital, and they then resumed a relationship for a few months. Caitlin said that Adam had come into the office looking for evidence of who killed Mary. They got into a fight, and Bill told Adam to leave the office. Caitlin was asked if she knew what Mary died from. Caitlin said she didn't know. They said it was from poisoning. Caitlin asked how you spelled the poison, so they wrote it for her. The police knew that Caitlin was lying about not knowing how Mary died. You were 100% honest with me, Mary. That wasn't my question. You weren't 100% honest with me in the beginning. You knew about culture scene. Yeah. And possibly you were going to be relying on Okay. I can't see for certain what I found out. So when you came in earlier and I asked you if you knew that it was Adam's account, and you said you know you'd never seen it, were you being honest when you done, or are you honest now? Well, I said I thought I We were back together, and, you know, he's been to my home. He would have access to my computers. During the interview, Caitlin continued to bring up Adam. Every time Adam broke up with Caitlin, she would do something to bring him back to her. She fabricated pregnancy, and she accused Adam of raping her. Adam then realized he couldn't be with her. Caitlin did one last thing to get him back. The DNA from the letters finally came back. It was a DNA sample from a female. Caitlin was asked to come in for a DNA and fingerprint sample. She brought in letterheads and envelopes from the office, which the police never had asked for. They asked her if she wrote the letters, and Caitlin responded with, You can't protect me, as you heard in one of the clips. Caitlin did admit to writing the letter eventually. Is that why you wrote it? Or did you want to see Adam get in trouble? No, I guess I Guys, don't hang out at the murder weapon because that's why they get caught. Right, but guys also don't want to poison. They say it's babies for It's kind of hard to hear her in these videos, but Caitlin said that poison is a lady's weapon, which is where the episode title comes from. The police didn't have any evidence that Caitlin had killed Mary, so she was released. Adam came into the police station. He revealed that during his relationship with Caitlin, he had gotten very ill, three months to the day of his mom getting sick. Caitlin had given him alpha brain pills. Adam said he jokingly asked her if she had poisoned him, and it caused a fight between them. The police learned that the prepaid credit cards were used to pay for the clorchazine they were purchased at a local grocery store. Caitlin was once again interviewed in February 2016. The police used a prop and told Caitlin that they had her on camera buying the credit cards. They sent us two DVDs. From the dates and times those were purchased. Who is on these DVDs? She continually said, that's not me. Adam must have done it. Not me, not me, not me. Did Mary Oder deserve that? How many grandkids did Mary have? 
Caitlin got physically sick during that interview. It's believed that Caitlin killed Mary to punish Adam. When Mary left at 12.30 p.m., Caitlin put chlorchicine in Mary's protein shake. Caitlin was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. At trial, Caitlin was convicted of first-degree manslaughter. The first trial ended in a mistrial, but she was eventually convicted and sentenced to 23 years. Caitlin filed an appeal, but it was denied. According to FreeCaitlinConnelly.com, Mary's sisters, Janine, Sally, and Sharon, believe Caitlin is innocent and that Bill killed Mary. They brought up how Mary got sick, how Bill didn't answer any phone calls while Mary was in the hospital, the cremation, the fact that clochazine can be used as an agent to grow marijuana, and they said that Bill was known to grow a crop in the 1980s, and that there was no evidence that Mary had a shake for lunch. The whole case is based on what Mary consumed the day before she died. Also remember, Bill had a relationship with Kathy. The sisters have said that Bill and Kathy got together as early as July 30th. They described Caitlin as a good girl from a good family and that they don't think she did this. It's interesting to read their side of things. While Caitlin may have had a motive, I think there are too many questions left unanswered to know what actually happened. It could have been Caitlin or Bill. Hopefully, if Caitlin is innocent, it will be proven. My book recommendation for this week is The Last Invitation by Darby Kane who is also the author of Pretty Little Life, which I reviewed a while ago. Summary. They meet the second Tuesday of every month and vote, and then someone dies. Over the last few years, prominent people, a retired diplomat, beloved basketball coach, the CEO of an empire, have died in a series of fluke accidents and shocking suicides. There's no apparent connection, no signs of foul play. Behind it all is a powerful group of women, the Sophie Foundation, who meet over wine and cheese to review files of men who behave very, very badly and then meet out justice. Jessa Hall jumped at the mysterious ex exclusive invitation to the secret club. The invite comes while she's at her lowest, aching for a way to take control back. After years of fighting and scratching to get ahead, she's ready for a chance to make the bad guys lose. Jessa soon realizes, though, just how far she's willing to go and how dangerous the game has become. Once in the group, it's impossible to get out. She has nowhere to turn except for her former friend, Gabby Fielding, who is investigating the mysterious death of her ex-husband. Aligned in their goal to take down the foundation, Gabby and Jessa need each other, but working together doesn't mean they trust each other or that either will survive to tell the truth. This book was very intriguing and it has a cult-like complex to it. Jessa and Gabby seem to be the only ones who can see right through the foundation and are willing to risk their lives to leave and take down once and for all, even if they don't trust each other. I give this book a 9 out of 10. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'd love to know what you think. Do you think Caitlin Connolly is innocent or guilty? And do you really think Bill killed his wife? Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, buy me a coffee, and leave me a five-star rating and review. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.